And the second reading follows on in the book of Malachi, um, chapter 3, verses 6 to 18. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, and there may be food in my, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not, will, will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. This is the word of the Lord. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. It's the title of Jeffrey Archer's newest novel, 2014. It's the title of uh, the new US thriller coming to cinema near you. Be careful uh, what you wish for. And it could well be the title of Malachi chapter 3. Because in it we find a wish expressed which goes on to unsettle and undermine many of those who expressed it. Be careful what you wish for. The prophet Malachi was ministering 60 or 70 years after the completion of the building of the temple, and Israel as a nation were filled with disillusionment. They had these very great promises. They'd been promised that the nations were going to flock to Israel to worship at the temple. They'd been promised renown and riches. And as they looked around candidly, they were small in number and under Persian domination. And that didn't make them happy. They were disillusioned. And what they wanted more than anything else was for the living God of the Bible to intervene in his justice to vindicate them, 
That is why they express that wish right at the beginning of Cass's reading. Chapter 2, verse 17. Where is the God of justice? And the answer to that wish, that question, triggers a conversation typical of Malachi between the Lord Almighty and his people, Israel. And as the conversation unfolds, it reveals who ultimately is ready for the coming of the God of justice and who is not. As Tim said, it's a hard-hitting passage. And we're going to walk through it using three sets of characters as Waymark as the refiner. You'll be pleased. They all start with R, uh, the robbers and the resolute. And uh, if you're a note-taker, the headings are on the back of the yellow sheet. But where is the God of justice? Be careful what you wish for. Firstly, the refiner. The God of justice is coming. Did you notice the answer to their question in verses 1 to 5? Uh, Where is the God of justice? Verse 1, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Verse 5, so I will come. Question, where is the God of justice? Answer, coming. He's coming, and he's coming suddenly and fast. And are you ready for him? Verse 2 is striking, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And those rhetorical questions are quite clearly inviting the answer, nobody. Nobody can endure it. Nobody can stand. For the one who is coming, as I think Tim mentioned earlier in the service, is called the Lord Almighty. It means the Lord of hosts, or quite literally the Lord of the armies, not a soft, cuddly, teddy bear title. It's edgy. He's the one, if you know Revelation at all, who we're told is riding on a white charger at the head of heaven's armies, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point is that Jesus here is not the vulnerable Jesus. I think we can often portray him as the vulnerable Jesus, like a door-to-door salesman, You know, knocking on our door, needing our belief, our devotion, our giving. He looks so lonely there, so abandoned, so vulnerable. But that is not the picture of Jesus here. He is the Lord Almighty. He needs nothing from anybody. He's El Shaddai, the Almighty One. He's holy. He's of purer eyes than to look on evil. He's dangerous in his holiness. And therefore, who can endure the day of his coming? I remember saying to the youth group a couple of years ago, if Jesus was to walk into this room now, how would you respond? And we had various responses. But let me tell you now that if Jesus was to walk in here right now, we would not shake his hand or give him a hug or photograph him. We would fall involuntarily to our knees. He's the Lord Almighty. But the gospel surprise comes as we read the second part of verse 2. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. Now let me ask you, which word there surprised you the most? The word which surprised me the most was the word refiner's. 
And I'll tell you why. It's because by rights, the God of the universe should be a consuming fire amongst us. Just as flames consume petrol, so God's holiness consumes sin and sinners. He should be a consuming fire amongst us, the God of justice. But here, wonderfully, he's the refining fire. It's the amazing thing that when the God of the Bible comes amongst us, he makes himself safe to us. He changes us so that we can live with him and not be hurt by him. And there are two images used for this. The first is fire, and the second is soap. Uh, Since his holiness demands purity, he uh, burns the dross and the impurities out of us so that we can be like that pure silver or gold from Hatton Gardens. Or since his holiness demands inward cleansing, as we spoke about earlier with the baptism, his launderer's soap cleans us from the inside. And of course, that is exactly what we're praying for Edie, as Ben spoke about earlier. We pray that this outward sign that's so moving to see would come to be true in her life, inside of her, that she would come to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and accept that and be washed with the Lord's launderer's soap in the language of Malachi 3. But that washing, that refining, that forgiveness always comes hand in hand with repentance. Do you notice that when you read the Bible? It's never just um, the forgiveness of sins which is preached, it's the forgiveness of sins and repentance. And that's where verse 5 comes in. It's a tragic verse, I think, but one which is loving in its clarity. I will come near you for judgment. This is directed at those who haven't been washed or purified or accepted Christ's forgiveness. Notice that the list encompasses all sorts of sin. Spirituality. In the area of sexuality. In the area of how we use our words of our employment ethics, of our social ethics. And the last one in the list there is very pertinent for us, as Penny was praying, with all the refugees coming. I was quite struck by that. But also notice why these things will be judged. It's because none of them spring from a fear of God. That's why sin is so serious, incidentally. It's not that when we sin, we're we're sort of contravening an abstract law that's just hanging there in the ether. It's that we're personally slapping the God of the universe in the face. It's a personal affront to him. And so the glorious offer of verse 7 is given after the warning of judgment. Don't you love it? Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. It's an invitation he issues to every human being, every person here this morning. It's an invitation Edie, we pray, will come to understand and receive herself. He promises full and free forgiveness for those who will repent and receive it from him. It may be that some would like to come on that Alpha course that Tim was mentioning earlier to see what that looked like. But Israel had a problem. Did you see their question, how? How are we to return And it wasn't an orienteering question. They weren't saying, we're not quite sure the way back to you. We're not quite sure we need a map. 
It was a self-justifying question which came from a heart of pride. They were saying, how can we return if we're already with you? How can we turn around and repent when there's nothing we need to repent of? If repentance is for sinners, then repentance is not for us, they were saying. It's actually a very proud question to ask, and the Lord's answer to the question is nothing short of robust, so are you ready for it? He zeroes in on a particular standout sin for these people, and I must warn you, it's to do with money. Brings us to our second heading, the robbers, the gift which takes more than it gives, the robbers. End of verse 7, but you ask, how are we to return? Here's the answer. Will a man rob God? Well, of course not. I take it that if some of us don't believe in the existence of God, if you were to believe in the existence of a living God this morning, he would be the last person you would think about robbing from, would he not? We would surely get caught. It would surely not work out well for us. Will a man rob God? And then the next words are chilling if you look down. Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? And here's the surprise, in tithes and offerings. Isn't that a surprise? It's provocatively put. They are robbing God in their very act of giving to him. Their gifts to God take from God more than they give to him. They are robbing in their generosity. Now, that's a paradox. Verse 10 sheds a bit more light for us. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. In the Old Testament, (coughs) the tithe, the tenth of all that people had, was asked to be given to the temple and those who worked there, the priests and the Levites. And that was so the whole temple could run. And it would say that they could have enough food to live off. But it seems in Malachi's day, the people had fallen short of giving the full tithe. They'd promised to give the full tithe, but then suddenly the reality of the cost of the school fees for the children had hit home. Or the pension just needed plumping a little bit more. Or the car fund was looking a little bit low. And they just pulled back from that promise. And the Lord says that giving less than they ought to give is equal to robbing him. And that makes sense if we think about it for a moment. When I promise to give you something, that thing is by rights yours. If I then don't give you that thing, I am essentially robbing from you. Now, the God of the universe owns everyone and everything in this universe, By rights, he could take it from us right now, but he's loaned it to us out of his generosity. All he asked the Old Testament believers was to give a tenth. How generous of God. And yet even that they were not willing to give. Do you see how they were robbing God even in their miserly generosity? And robbing God is the very definition of foolishness because in doing so we rob ourselves Did you see verse 10? Bring the whole tithe, test me in this. I think it's the only time God invites people to test him. And see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven 
and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Now, we need to be careful here. It's not that giving generously to God is a surefire economic way of hitting the rich list for ourselves. To do so, thinking that, would be intrinsically selfish. But it is that, as a general rule, those who are generous to God with their time, energy, gifts, and money will not end up losing out. As it's often said, God is no man or woman's debtor. And many of us will know that. We can testify to that. Notice a few principles for giving found in our passage here before we move on. First, giving to the Lord means giving to his temple, or in our day, giving to his church. Now, there are, are there not, a thousand and one worthy causes to give to in our world. Even the Rugby World Cup, wonderfully, doing charity giving. Those little clips and films are very moving. But the priority for God's people should be giving to his church, and particularly their local church. Now, there's a conflict of interest here, isn't there, for me? But St. Michael's, I think, for us, if we would consider ourselves members here, should be the main beneficiary of our regular month-by-month giving, the main one. Because if you think about it, no one else is going to give to the church here. We're not government-funded. Contrary to popular opinion, there's not a great St. Michael's fan base worldwide. No one else will give to St. Michael's Chester Square unless we do. And that should be a priority for us. Second, give systematically. The Jews were to give their tithe and first fruits gifts systematically. There were not to be afterthoughts at the end of the month thinking, I've got a bit of this left over, so I'll give that. It was the first action. And therefore, I think our government and our banking makes it very easy for us to do the same now. I think it should be right for every member of a a church, whether it be St. Michael's or any other, to be giving by standing order. I think, this may be controversial, that key members of St. Michael's here should not, as a rule, be giving their regular giving in the collection. We may want to do that over and above our base giving. But our main giving should come by standing order because we're wanting to ensure we're not robbing God. The beginning of the month, we're giving the best of what we've got. So systematically. Third, giving is to be proportional to our income. You see the principle here in the Old Testament is is the tithe, the tenth. Now the tithe sometimes is used as a basis for New Testament believers to give. It's sensible. But actually, the principle in the New Testament is to give self-sacrificially. It's a slightly sterner test we're given by Christ. Now, that, of course, is proportional as well to our income. Some of us could give oodles of cash away before it became self-sacrificial. Some of us could give rather less away before it became self-sacrificial. But the principle remains the same. It should affect the kind of holidays I go on, the kind of car I drive and all that stuff. The principle is of self-sacrifice, and that is proportional in our giving. Now, it may well be that there are some here who haven't taken that step yet. It's often said the wallet is the last thing to be converted in somebody. It may well be that we know this, but we need reminding of it, and I am in that camp. I speak these words to myself. But either way, isn't it a shock to think if we are not giving of our best to God, 
It's not that we've dropped slightly on the exam rating spiritually from a first to a 2-1. It's that we're doing something very offensive. We're robbing the God of the universe. Last point, the refiner, the robbers, and finally and wonderfully, the resolute. God's treasured possession are remembered. Verses 15 to 18. Now, living in the way I just described in Malachi 3 is hard, is it not? That is a hard way to live. Because many of those around me are not living in the same way as that. And I find that hard. Maybe even others around me who would call themselves Christians are not living in that way. Maybe even others around me who would call themselves Christians at St. Michael's Chester Square are not living that way. And that makes it very hard indeed for me to live that way. Because I tend to look over my shoulder laterally at my friends here and think, are they playing me on side or not? Now, that's the wrong way to look. I need to look at what God demands of me. But it makes it harder when others around me are half-hearted. And many of the people in Malachi's day had begun to question whether it was worth living for God wholeheartedly. They were saying, verse 14, it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? They were looking around themselves and noticing, verse 15, that the evildoers prosper and some of those who challenge God escape. It's as if they walked around Chester Square thinking, hmm, those people who drive the really smart cars aren't necessarily more godly. Why is it that godliness doesn't accord with blessing? And so they thought, well, I'm not going to mess around with this. I'm going to look after number one and keep my cash. Very easy for me to fall into that trap. And that kind of atmosphere is corrosive for keen Christians. Just like the salty sea air is for a steel rod, we keen Christians will go very rusty very quickly in that kind of atmosphere. I don't know about you, but I find it very easy to stay sharp spiritually and keen when I'm living amongst dyed-in-the-wool atheists. I expect them to live the way they do, but what really affects my life with Christ is when I live with half-hearted Christians. That really gets me, and it really corrodes my radical living. Now, what we need to do in that situation is gather together and encourage one another to do the right thing. Have a look at verse 16. I find it very moving. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. They got together. They said, are you finding this hard? And they said, yes. And they said, me too. And what are we going to do about this? And it's a picture of church. I don't know whether they had coffee in their hand or what, but it was church. My guess is they encouraged one another. And the Lord listened and heard what they said. They seem to have resolved to fear the Lord, to honor his name, stand against the prevalent culture of the day. And I pray that some of us are with them. We might call them the resolute. And if that's us, as I close, did you know that God knows our names? Verse 16, a scroll of remembrance was written in God's presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So often our sacrifices as Christians are made in secret. And is that not true particularly for our financial sacrifices and giving? Nobody else knows. 
and I want everybody else to know, but they don't. There's no brass plaque with my name on it. But you know who does know? You know who knows your name? It's the Lord Almighty. And he values that. I'm going to close by reading the last verse of our passage. In that day, when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will see again the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Let's close in prayer. Father God, have mercy on us, have mercy on me. We confess to you freely this morning that we need your launderer's soap, we need your refining fire. Please purify us. We thank you for the forgiveness found in Christ. But it is our desire to be the resolute, to be radically generous. And so we pray that you'd help us in that, help us to help each other in that. Thank you that you know our names and you remember us. Amen.